I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry. You know, that's kind of a bold statement when you say that. This is his ministry, but it is. And uh, I muck it up, but uh, it is his ministry, and we're just grateful to be a part of it. Uh, we pray that he will be with you and us tonight, wherever you may be. Looking for a Sunday church to attend but don't live in the area, don't want or can't leave the house, sick of the evangelical shows that are about, tune in live with us every Sunday at either 10 a.m. or 2.30 p.m. Mountain Time and watch our verse-by-verse -verse studies. How do you do it? You go to, and I think we have a graphic, there it is, www.youtube.com backslash, or is that a forward slash? Forward slash user, forward slash watch campus. That's how you do it, and you can watch live streaming from anywhere in the world. Uh, additionally, we have a television station that is now operational. Our goal is to provide a constant stream of unique information. In the end, we hope it will not be repeatable information. It's going to take some time. And that brings people either to the cross or people who have found the cross to enhance their Christian walk. There are all sorts of models and approaches that have been taken with television. But in the end, we have decided to, to give every minute of the air time. Uh, we, our byline is giving God a chance to make sense. And we go to some unusual means to try and accomplish this. Take a look. So if you live in the Salt Lake Valley, uh, you can tune in to 19.3 KPDR in the coming months and you'll get, uh, we hope to get picked up by Cable Dish and Direct and you can pick it up in another way there. So please keep us in your prayers um, that God will bless this effort as we go forward. With that, how about a moment from Zawad? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse. Because we are in ministry to the LDS and have been for a number of years, we often get emails and uh, phone calls sometimes, requests. What church should I attend now that I've come out of the LDS church, John? And we have some basic things that we tell LDS 
uh, people who have become Christian uh, to look for and then to avoid. Uh, we tell them to first and foremost look for pastors who teach the Word of God. The more Word of God, the better. Uh, we like verse by verse teaching simply because, well, not simply because, but for a number of reasons. First, uh, it really gets people to read the word in its entirety. Many people never read the Bible, but when they come to church, they are at least there able to read the, the word in entirety, at least a, a string of verses from the same area. Also, word, uh, verse by verse doesn't allow a pastor to skip over difficult passages and just kind of throw them aside and never ever cover them. They have to hit them when they're there and it forces them to sort of pass that information on feeding the sheep as it were. It also avoids the very natural inclination all of us have. I have, I have the natural inclination to talk about unique approaches to uh, Christianity. I would talk about that all the time if I had an open forum. But uh, when you go verse by verse, it helps pastors avoid soapboxes. And usually, if you're not going verse by verse, a pastor will, in a given year, repeat a similar message that is his personal one, two, five, ten soapbox topics. And, and then additionally, topical presentations can prove almost anything. You can pick and choose any assortment and construct something. And so verse by verse helps to avoid that, uh, at least because we're looking at context, etc. In areas to avoid, we openly warn everybody to be very cautious of churches that tried to control uh, lives through a lot of volunteerism programs and or new causes every month. Be cautious of anything a church or pastor might use to control your family, like a set of rules uh, for individual and family accountability, uh, i.e., how much money do you give if a couple is devoting enough time to the church, uh, how parents discipline and raise their children, stuff like that. Watch out for the word tithing, the T word, uh, or when a church comes up with a plan and then imposes the pain for that plan upon the congregants. Um, and so be careful of that uh, when it comes to church, Sunday church, you know. And then be cautious of signing worthiness contracts. Sometimes churches have people actually sign contracts for behavior that they agree to do, you know, in my opinion, be careful of wild worship services or shows and be wary of churches that are really poor on signs and wonders and miracles uh, within their, uh, uh, their confines. I've seen more spiritually abused and confused people uh, come out of these churches, even in, out of Mormonism sometimes. Not always. Mormonism does a real mind job on people, but, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people come out of some of those really charismatically driven churches and are very spiritually confused. Why do I bring this all up in under from the word? Well, I do it because Jesus was in the temple and he's talking to his fellow Jews. And in John 8, we covered this on Sunday, the Lord has been revealing his identity slowly but surely to onlookers. And beginning at verse 30, we read, and as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That little segment, it struck me when I was teaching on Sunday, is really a potent little description of the Christian life. It really is. Because you start off, you notice Jesus has been teaching, and he spoke to many, and it says, and he, it says he, many believed on him. That's the first step. They believe. That's the first step. And then we read, Jesus said to those who believed on him, so these people who, ha who have been somewhat converted in some way or another, if you continue in my word. And so he tells them right there, you got to continue in the things I've said, the things I've taught, the things I'm about, the things I suggest, all of that, my word. If you continue in my word, he says, then you are my disciples indeed. And that's what churches are seeking to do, make disciples of Christ. So he says, if you continue in my word, so the word is very important, you are my disciples indeed, and then you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in other words, churches shouldn't be doing things to put people into bondage, 
or to tie them up, but they should be doing things to set them free. That's what happens. So the church's job is to help those to come to know Jesus, I guess, you know, people who don't know him, know him better, and then continue in the word so that they can be his disciples indeed, truly his disciples, and so that those people can know the truth, and then the truth will set them free, not rebind them up. Before we go to the prayer, uh, there's been brought to my attention by a number of people over the past month that Dr. John MacArthur, who uh, plays on 19.3, the Heart of the Matter television network, John MacArthur changed his mind on eternal sonship, a topic we've talked about in the past few weeks, a number of years ago, actually. And I have said on the air, John MacArthur doesn't believe in eternal sonship, neither does Walter Martin. Well, people have written and said, John MacArthur changed his mind. One person actually said he has since repented. Uh, which uh, means changing the mind, we know that, but in Christianese, it means that he turned from his sin. Uh, anyway, John MacArthur changed his mind, so there's the correct correction. Sean McCraney has not. Uh, no comparison between the two men, but in any case, that's how it is. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we love you and seek you. We thank you for life. We thank you for uh, your son, we thank you for your word, and we are grateful to uh, have freedom to seek you openly and talk openly and pursue you. We love you. We pray your blessings upon those who are seeking truth, those who are beguiled, those who are lost and trapped in Mormonism, those who are uh, wanting to grow in their walk with you, our volunteers, our staff, studio audience here, wherever they may be. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I made a case for Christian artists having a viable place in how they see and explain and relate to Christianity as in the body, as viable a place, I said, as theologians and scholars. And I was not suggesting in any way that we refuse or discount our scholars and theologians, not in the least. We uh, benefit greatly from such men's insights. But I am suggesting that there is a place for divergent views and thoughts on how we understand what the Bible says, and that maybe the scholars, for maybe a little bit too long, have determined how believers should view the faith and how they shouldn't. And maybe some other views should be able to come to the table as long as they fit within the biblical perspective. See, there is this influence, it's really a weird thing, but there's this influence in the body of Christ called the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost, if you want, and um, which so long as the promptings we assign to him are fit within the body of biblical text, they ought to be given leeway on how people see or observe uh, the things written in the Bible, how people believe and what their faith is. The, the scholars and theologians shouldn't have complete this is how it is and this is how it's not. Maybe I suggested there are other ways to see Christ Jesus and the beliefs that go on with being a follower of him. Now, I, since I did that last week, I've had a number of people ask me personally, face to face, what's an example of Christian artistry that you're speaking of? We know what theologians do in their systematic theology and so but what's Christian artistry look like? And so I'm gonna offer one up tonight. In fact, I'm gonna to attempt to present what I suppose is, has not ever been done. It's uh, a way to understand how God has engaged himself in the creation, salvation, and sanctification of human beings. We have a Roman's road. This is sort of similar to that, but it incorporates some imagery that may or may not help. If it's an approach that is viable, say so. If it's an approach that fails, say so. But this is an example of how I, when I read the scripture, what came to me as I was sitting one day and it flowed out and I put it in my book, I have a book and it came out and this is how I see the method by which God has redeemed and reaches men and women. You decide. One thing to note before we go to the whiteboard, I consider this a teaching tool like like any other tool, it is not, no one has to receive it or accept it. I just wanna know if according to you, especially my Christian critics out there, the ones who say names, you know, I wanna know if this holds biblical water. 
If it does, I don't think it's ever been brought forward. I've never seen it before. It's not me. I felt like the Holy Spirit was working upon me to see the Bible in this way. So let's see if it works. Most importantly, would this help bridge the gap between understanding between Christians and Mormons about God has worked and what the biblical stance is? So go with me to the whiteboard and let me present to you a Christian artist model of how God has engaged himself in the creation, salvation, and sanctification of humankind. All right? Let me get a glass, drink of water here first. Derek, it's your job to stay with me. First of all, I want to tell you, from my opinion, and this is the model, everything begins with X. Everything begins with the... Everything begins with X. Now, you might say why. It's something that I just, I don't know why. I'm just telling you it begins with X. Now, we know that in the Greek, this is the Greek, the 22nd Greek letter, and it's the chi, and it is represented by the X. This is the, the letter that represents Christ in Greek, which is where we get, uh, have you heard of Xmas? That's not crossing Christ out. That's a way of saying Christmas. Uh, Anciently, okay, so X is also X is interesting because all it really is is a cross to the side. So, so X plays a very interesting role in this model that I want to show you, okay? So we have the X, and let me just go and I'm going to break down the X and just show you the top part of it, all right? Here's the top part of the X, and I am going to put in this. Theos, and Logos, and Numa, and I am going to put in Spirit, and I'm going to put in Love, and I'm going to put in Fire, and I'm going to put in Light, and these are all biblical descriptions of God. So we're going to use this, this top part of the X as a description of God. And you can see that it's all pointing down. Because God is overall, and we can say that this is the universe. So this is, this is God to me, before we have incarnation, we have all these titles and words, and this is him. Well, we know in Genesis, God said, let's make man in our image. And so we have him extend down, and we have the mere version of him up here, now extending down. And we know from Genesis that man has dominion over his little universe, the earth, over the animals, everything else. And so here we have body, sarks in the Greek. We have soul, pneuma in the Greek. And we have spirit. Now, excuse me, soul is uh, suke. Suke, this is sarks. And this is pneuma. And we have three in one, okay? And I'm gonna put a, I'm gonna put that down there. And so we have the bottom part of the X, we have the top part of the X, and we have completely incorporated down here. This was one man, Adam, okay? And and in him, he could not tell you what was his body, his soul, or his spirit. I would guess. And 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 prior to the incarnation, I don't think. We, we had uh, God discerning, well, here is the Son, and here is the Father, and here is the Holy Spirit. I think we had God, and I think we have man, and I think we have their respective deals, okay? So there is the model, X. Let's just look at that and use that as the model to begin with how we're going to understand this, all right? Here, with X, we had a free will relationship. All God said was, listen, Adam, you can do what you want with this garden. Have at it. Go ahead. Just don't eat of that tree. You choose. It's up to you. This is a free will relationship. I'm not going to stop you from eating it. I'm not going to do anything if you eat it immediately. You are going to reap the benefits or the detriments for disobeying or for obedience. But I'm just telling you, I want a free will relationship with you, God. I, uh, I, Adam, I've made you in my image, three in one, and I'm three in one. We have theos, logos, pneuma. 
okay, but very tough to distinguish, and here we go. And so he gives this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he says, don't eat of it, Adam, okay? I want a relationship. No differentiation. Well, guess what? Look what the name of this tree was, tree of knowledge of good and evil. God did not want Adam to get knowledge before love. God did not want Adam to have knowledge before love. He wanted Adam to have love for him first and to get knowledge in and through that relationship, not to go to some external source, knowledge of good and evil, yes. Oh, okay, so he, he's not looking for him to do that. He wants him to have this relationship. Don't eat that tree. And this tree, the presence of it, gave choice. There it is, choice. That tree's presence said, Adam, you can choose to love me or you can choose to show you don't love me, but you love yourself more. And there's that tree. You wanna show that you love your way more than me, then you go ahead and eat of it. You got it all? Knowledge without love creates sin and death and disease. And God said, don't eat of that tree of knowledge. Come to me if you have a question. Show you love me in an open free relationship. Adam said, no, I'm going to eat of this tree. Knowledge without love is self-centered. Knowledge without love is the, is the source of despots and pogroms and, and, and terrible, terrible things that men have done to other men forever. It's their knowledge without that love. So God said, don't do it, Adam did it. And guess what happened to the X? We had a sever. I'm gonna make a lightning bolt just to illustrate it. And we had a complete sever here that occurred. Adam chose the shortcut. He chose self-will over God. He sinned and he ended this relationship of free will and complete connectivity. And so we have a complete separation. And what also happened here was not just that Adam now looks up to God over his dominion and looks to God for his answers and God looks down. God continues to look down, but Adam says, guess what? I am God now over my own universe. I'm God. I don't need him up there. I have the whole universe that, that responds to me. That's called the self-will of man. So we have a flip over. The X has turned upside down and, and man has believed he is God. And that is the fall of man from the beginning. Now man has knowledge, but he doesn't have the capacity to love like God does. Something else happened here, I would suggest. All of this is man-focused. Focus on God is not a focus on self. Man is God of his own universe. Additionally, I would su suggest that due to the fall, that man here, remember here he was body, soul, and spirit, and I don't think he could individuate between those. Because of this, Man now has suddenly uh, become three in one. He has a body. He has a soul. He has a, uh, a spirit that's dead. And this is how man now lives. And these war against each other. And they battle with each other. And this produces disease. And this produces sin. And this produces psychosis. And this produces schizophrenia because man, it really looks like this. He's completely, he's just barely hanging on with his parts. Before he was completely integrated with the X below. Now he's bifurcated into spirit that's dead, body and soul. And guess what? Because God so loved the world, I believe at that point, God then bifurcated and became son, father and Holy Spirit. Because he so loved the world, he said, I'm going to leave this, this throne that I am on, and I am going to send my word as my son, and the Holy Spirit will come day of Pentecost. And so we have God remaining the same, still pointing down for the benefit of, of man, still the same, but when the son became incarnate, and the Holy Spirit uh, fell at Pentecost, and, the, and God became a father, it's all in response to man 
becoming bifurcated and becoming a very weak vessel. He needs saving. So we have this picture here. What's going to happen? Well, this is what happened. God said, now listen, I have some laws I'm going to give you. This was free will down here. I have some laws I'm going to give you. And that's like superimposing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit over upon man. And guess what that is? That's law. Did it work? No. It doesn't work at all. Man, God superimposing over himself on top is called law, and it would never redeem man. Men could comply with the law the best they can, but they were never, ever strengthened by it. It couldn't save them. They were still weakened by God laying heavily on top of them is the only way I could describe it. So then Jesus comes and he's born and then people think, well, listen, I have a body and a soul and a spirit and Jesus, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son and I've, I've, I've filled them with the Holy Spirit has come upon me and, 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 and or, or it's fallen upon me, it's not in me and this is called religion. All right, and people say, I'm a Christian. Jesus is now part of my life, not my whole life. Jesus plays a role in my life, but isn't my whole life. And that's the same thing. It's superimposing God upon man. Religion will not bring people either. I need someone to help me. Mary, I need you to erase that, all that end. Okay, so we have this whole model here. In fact, erase the whole board and let me talk. <clears throat> so what happens man is faced the same way as god god is pointing down to help man man thinks he's god the law free will hasn't helped the law hasn't helped religion hasn't helped god is going to do something but it has to occur when man flips around there has to be a change, there has to be a flip. And it's when man sees himself as having been egocentric, has put himself in God's place, as, as needing a savior. When that happens, we have rebirth. And let me explain what happens there. That's good. Okay. We have Son, Father, Holy Spirit. We have man, body, soul, spirit, facing the same way. At rebirth, what happens is man flips and he goes back to this original place that he was before. Do you get that? God is still facing down Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but man now, excuse me, I blew that. Man now is flipped over. He's not this direction anymore. He sees himself as needing. See, all these are all pointing to God. He sees that his body, his soul, and his spirit needs to have God as the focal point of his direction instead of the things of this earth and thinking the universe is governed by him. We call this rebirth. When this occurs in someone's life, when this occurs, what we have here is, it's a big word, integration. This is how God saves and redeems humankind. Because what we have is this. And we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit integrating with the body, soul, and spirit of man. And we have complete reinforcement. No longer is man dangling out here and, and, and fighting his body and his spirit and his flesh and his soul at war with each other, if that's even possible. Remember, this is just illustrative. But we have complete integration where God came down and he gets in and he now lives within humankind. And that is how God brings man back to his presence. And it's because of this, of this um, disintegration that occurred at the fall that I have problems with eternal sonship and I have problems with eternal fathership. I have God 
who was completely integrated, and I have man who was completely integrated, but the fall brought disintegration with man thinking he was God and man needing to be reborn. And when he is reborn and sees himself for what he is, earthbound and needing a God, pointing to God, we have God being willing to integrate now with man. And then God does the work upon the body, soul, and spirit of man because the Holy Spirit, the Son, the Father are dwelling within him. Christ is in them. Christ brought that, that unity to them. Now you might say, oh, this is, this is really out there. Well, let me tell you something else. This right here is what we call born again. Sorry, I keep looking at that camera, Derek. This is what we call regeneration. We, some people call it the Jesus experience. And they stay there. They think this is what God wants. He wants far more. He wants far more. And the word teaches us that he wants far more. But so many in the body today say, I've been born again. I'm a Christian. And they stop there. All the parable, many of the parables that Jesus teach. No, 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 no. Now it's time for fruit. So what we have, go with me now, we have, we have babes in Christ. It's really an important time because here you see you are no longer focused on yourself, pointed down in all your body, soul, and spirit, but that you flipped over and you are God-focused now, pointing up in your body, soul, and spirit, that God has now integrated with you. And look at where all of these sides point, toward the heart of man, toward the center of what man is about. And it's trying to bring God and, and bring man out of his sinful nature. And so we bask in this relationship. We love it. It's a wonderful time to be a babe in Christ. We're born again. All we can talk about is Jesus, okay? So look at, but God says, you know, I like this, but there's a word for this, uh, for babes. And he goes, there's another word and it's called children. It's technon. And when you're children in Christ, he starts to grow you a little bit and you start to sprout little things that no longer say I'm only focused on myself, but I'm starting to look outward now. I'm starting to think about the needs of others. It's called love. It's where God is trying to grow us outward from just the self-focus of spiritual rebirth, but to move us outward and looking at other people's needs. This is very much part of God's plan. Well, then we also know from 1 John, there's a title for young men and women. And what we do is we have that center integration still in place because it has to be in place, rebirth, keeping us there. But then we start to grow more and more and we start to produce fruit. And then first John tells us we have something called fathers, parents in Christ who are fully engaged in pointing and reaching out to others. When you become a father in Christ, this is the purpose of the church. The Mormons, they talk about sanctification and becoming perfect. That's not absent from scripture. We're not perfect in our flesh, never. Our flesh is still down here battling with being selfish and, and world focused. But our spirit now is pointed to here and as we grow, we become more and more uh, because of the strength of this unity in here, in this core, we more and more look to others. Guess what this is? This is the same figure that we had at the beginning. You remember the X? It's the same figure, except it now overlaps. We have this, and we have this. And in the center of that, we have that. You know what that is? That's the Star of David. It wasn't created from nothing. It has purpose. So we have the core center here in the Star of David, and we have the full mature Christian reaching out. And guess what we also have? Three crosses within that Star of David, replicating the three, replicating a man and God coming together in unity to bring forth what God wants men to be. Making sense to you? 
I've never seen this in my life. Never. I'm not anybody to come up with it. It's just, I, I see the world in a different way. I've never read a theologian talk about anything like this. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe it doesn't make any sense to you, but maybe it does. And if it does, do we have the right to understand God in terms like this? Or do we have to say, no, this is what it is. Trinity, three person, or do, can we see outside of that now? Are we going to have to step out a little bit in our understanding of the love of God for us in order to keep up with the world and how it is ripping us apart and give better answers to people as they try to understand the differences between Christianity and secular humanism, atheism, Mormonism, etc., etc. Let's go to the phones. 801. What? 590-8413. And that was from a blind deaf man who's never been here before. Uh, we're going to go with, oh, we don't have anybody ready. Okay. I don't have anybody on the screen. All right. Listen, the lines are, are beeping. Keep trying to call in. There's one line available. We'll clear it and we'll talk. Receive this email from Ryan R. He brings up an important point worth mentioning. As a former LDS member who's now born again, like you are, needless to say, last month has been interesting on your shows. He says, Watching the Inquisition show, he said it was like a train wreck and says, quote, I received calls from my LDS family and friends who were literally laughing and saying, wow, so this is what it's like to watch anti-Mormons fight an anti-Mormon TV guy. Uh, I want to explain something. LDS people stand on this this false utopia of love and politeness. And they love that. And they think that, look at us, we do this so well, no one else can do it. But in the end, it's really based on pride. And so with that pride, they called, and they, they called this guy, and they're laughing. They say, this is what happens uh, uh, with, with a church that can't get along, with a bunch of different believers who are fighting. But I want to tell you something. Anybody can come up with a homogenous group that gets along. All you need is certain strictures and rules and pressures put in the right place, and you can get people to get along because they're operating under fear, and they're operating under guilt and shame and wanting to be seen in a certain way. Uh, and so the LDS, when they see a divergence and difficulty, they sit back and laugh, let them. It's pride that moves them to this perspective and pride that's, uh, is the product of what Mormon doctrine and praxis produce. All pride. At the same time, I think it's important for believers to continue to be honest. Uh, yeah, there were some low points produced by me and others in things like Inquisition and shows like this where things aren't picture perfect. Uh, but you know what? We are trying honestly to come to terms with what is going on in our religious life, in our spiritual life, and we're not ashamed to be failures. It's not about us. And so we don't have to fear not trying to get to the core issues of things together. And because the Mormons look at us and laugh, that shouldn't stop us in the least. Okay, uh, in line four, we're going to Robert in Clearwater, Florida. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Robert? Doing good. Doing good. Hey, um, real quick, I, I, I have so many questions to ask you. Um, I, I uh, um, found you about a month ago. I was Mormon for 20 years. I got out about 13 years ago. I was in, in the Elmwood Corps in my top primary, and, and uh, I never looked back. But one thing that, that I wanted to ask you about uh, was you your... Uh, view on limiting the church. I know that, that you made some uh, video about that. I didn't watch the whole thing. Um, can, can you just tell me a little bit more about that? I know that, that you think that maybe it should be around 120. Um, I go to a church that's, that's pushing about a thousand right now, and my view is, you know, it's God's church, and He's going to bring people in. If you're a Bible-believing, spirit-filled church, What's the problem with having more people than, than only 100 to 120? 
Okay, so uh, if I understand right, the, the, the volume is really hard on my ear here, and I can't seem to hear you clearly, but are you asking, Robert, the size of the church and my criticism of large churches? Yes. Okay. Uh, I think the LDS model is, is a good one for it. It's geographically based, and um, it's one of the things I think LDS do right. Doctrinally, forget it, uh, and all the other, but I, I like that model. And the reason is, is the, the, the pastor of the church in a small church, you know, maybe three or 400, can get to know the people in there and can know their needs. The congregates from those churches can also get to know the pastor and can make calls to him with things that are troubling or difficulty or funerals or weddings or whatever. When you have someone who is beside you, a second or a third pastor in line, they, the congregates don't wanna go to the second or third. They wanna go to the, to the pastor and they wanna talk to him. The second thing is when a church gets too big, it ruins the whole model of a sheep and a shepherd knowing his sheep's name. And so when you get- What is, what is too big? Well, that's, the, I mean, like said, I'm not trying- church and, and he's bringing these people in here and the church is a Bible-believing, spirit-filled church. Yeah. Why, why would you want to limit it? Let, let, me, let me finish. The, the, when, when you have too big of a church, and I'm not putting a number, uh, you know, I don't know. I know what's too big for me. And, and other pastors would know too. But when you get a certain time, you get to a certain place, there is just the, the, uh, a law of statistical regression where the pastor's not gonna be able to handle the affairs of the church. But what also happens, Robert, is people use that church to sneak in and sneak out, week in and week out, without ever meeting or talking to the pastor. Now, here's the problem. If you watch what I just presented, God does not have us having the Jesus experience and making that everything about the Christian walk. In fact, it's just the first step. He wants us to grow. Very difficult to grow in the church and when it's so large that you can escape in and out and people don't know your name. Mega churches, they are, they're, they're abhorrent. They are absolutely antithetical to the, to the shepherd sheep model that is all through scripture. How can a shepherd know the sheep's names? I totally agree with you on that. You what? I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, so that's part of it. And, and so I just think it's better, but I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's an imperfect deal and I've stepped away from trying to criticize it constantly. I realize that God works through things, but I'm just trying to say that there is good merit for pastors saying, you know, I'm gonna grow this church to, to a, a sizable number and once it's there, I'm gonna ask somebody from the church to go out and do another one nearby within 10 miles or something and have them start shepherd that church as well. I think that's a far better model and I think it's biblical. That's, that's wonderful. Um, two more questions, just real quick. Um, I was looking at Deuteronomy 30, um, let's, see, let's see, Deuteronomy 30, 11. And um, it says, for this commandment, which I command you to say, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Moses is referring to uh, the Torah, and this is something that I've always struggled with. Pastors say that you can't keep the law. Moses says that you can in this scripture, um, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse uh, 10 and 11. Um, I I'd like to know your thoughts on that. I and think then, that. My, and then my second question is. Oh wait! Don't do the second. I, I can't remember. L let me just let me just do this one, and then go to the third. Uh, Robert, I think that uh, the law, the Ten Commandments, can be kept except for probably the the tenth one, uh, "Thou shalt not covet." That's a tough one, and it's a spiritual one. But I think someone could, uh, well, not perfectly. The question is perfectly. Have no other gods before him. I mean, the moment you want to eat a donut when you're supposed to be fasting, you could almost interpret that as having another God. It's really tough. But I think the why 10 would, Why would Moses say it's not too far off? Because I know that the 613 commandments, there's only a few of them that are actually in the Torah. The rest of the rabbinical teachings, and, and I think that's what Jesus was talking about. He was, he was keeping all of these extra commandments on these people, yeah. and it was... 
it was becoming oppressive. Yeah. Um, because the rabbis interpreted this wrongly. Well, and this is how they got to this to the six hundred thirteen. My understanding is there's, there's really only a few, maybe about a hundred, but but the remaining of them. You know, they wanted to make themselves out to be righteous, but, but that's, that's what my question is, is how can Moses say the law is not far off, you can do it, but yet pastors say you cannot obey the law. He didn't I say mean, they can do it. He, he said that he's trying to encourage them and say you can approach it. He didn't say you could do it because if he said you could do it, then Paul would be wrong. And Paul said, the law cannot make anybody perfect. And it's not because the law is faulty, it's because we are. No man can perfectly keep it. Remember James and Galatians says, if you keep the whole law, but fail in one point, you're guilty of all. So you're talking about a 60 year life of living under the law and not being able to fail in one point. That's pretty darn tough. So I think Moses was being encouraging. I think he was saying, it's, it, we can follow through this, don't give up. But Christ came and he said, it has been written, thou shalt not do this, but I say, and he enhanced it, giving you what the true spirit and meaning of the law was, to love God and love man. And Christ is the one who really brought out what it was about. So I, I think your question's good, but I think you're missing, I think you're interpreting Moses as saying you could keep it. We know that uh, the rich young ruler came to Christ and he said, you know, Jesus said, he said, what should I do to be uh, saved? And Jesus said, do this, do this, do this, do this. And he says, I've done those things from my youth. And it says in Luke, not in Matthew, Mark, but in Luke, and the Lord loved him. So th there can be some real good living people who, aren't able, who are able to not commit adultery and kill and keep the Sabbath day holy and honor their parents and have done well. But you can't, you're not, no one is gonna be able to do that their entire life perfectly. Mm -hmm. Last question. Okay. Last thing, where are your Joseph Campbell shows? You you mentioned that, and I'm fervently trying to find them because I'm really interested in Mithrius and things like that, you know, things that are comparable to Jesus. And, and You know, where, I, I'm going to disappoint you. I never got to the Joseph Campbell stuff. I had it laid out, and uh, it didn't come about for, for who knows what. Uh, there was something came up, and I went a different direction. I wish I would have, but maybe in the future we'll do those, Robert. I would love for you to do that because there's there's a lot of parallels, like like I said, Mithrius and and Ra and things like that. You know, the Greek and Roman mythology. There are, um, there are. Hey, Robert, really appreciate you watching in your call, my friend. Thank you. God bless and have a good evening. Thank you. God bless you. Bye bye. We're going to uh, we're going to Alyssa in Dayton, Ohio, on line two. Alyssa, you're on Heart of the Matter. Alyssa. Oh yeah, hey. Um, okay, so I am not sure if I'm not sure if I'll ever be saved because I believe on Jesus but not in Jesus because it's not scientific like resurrection and stuff. So I want to know if you have any insight on that. What does on Jesus versus in Jesus mean? I'm sorry. Okay, so I think the concept that Jesus was teaching, like um, forgiveness, and also even the the whole idea that uh, he died for us says it's kind of um, the best thing you can imagine, really. Yeah. But I, I don't think that, I, I can't, can't really wrap my head around it as being like actually that it literally happened. Yeah. Because like virgin birth and everything is not scientific. So, but I've actually asked God to um, like take over my life and, and I want to be saved, but I don't think that's really going to happen because I can't really wrap my head around something that's, not real. Well, you're probably right. Probably won't yeah. happen. You know, I mean, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, this is yeah. how this this is how it works, Elisa. Jesus okay. said to the Jews, "If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sin." When he says "I am," it's a throwback to Exodus when Moses asked, "Who do I say that sent me?" And God says, "I am that I am." Tell them, "I am." And so he's saying, "I'm God." And so, Lisa, you have to come to understand that you have to have that flip that we described on the board. Right now, you're saying, yeah, I liked his moral principles and he was a good leader and a fine prophet, but I don't really buy resurrection and I don't really think that he's saved me from sins and all that stuff. And so you're in a place that, yes, if you die, you would die in your sin. That's the, that's the point. You die in your sin, uh, not good, not good at all. 
And, and, and I am a believer in a loving God who will deal with you lovingly but justly. But the thing is, there is something in your makeup that you don't think you need him for some reason. You think maybe you're good enough, maybe you're righteous enough, maybe that's kind of an archaic notion of someone dying for you. It's based in faith. I don't know whether there's a lack, but somewhere in your makeup, there's something that's probably a lack of humility and a little bit of pride that says, nah, I'm just not gonna buy into that. And let me tell you something, loving God says, have at it, he's not gonna force you. But I am here to tell you, now is the time to find him. Now is the time to examine your heart and realize who you are in your heart towards a holy God that has always existed and created you and created all things. You're, you're lacking some knowledge somewhere of who he is versus who you are. When you come to discover who you are, you will break and you will cry out to him. Now, listen, I'm sorry I'm rambling, but God loves you as much as he loves me or any other Christian or Buddhist or anyone else. And so he's gonna do everything he can to woo you and draw you. And sometimes he may break you. It might happen through a different way that will cause you to drop to your knees or you might say, no way. It's really a matter of the heart, Elisa, and that's the thing you have to examine. Yeah, that's pretty tough. I have a lot of fear of getting wrapped into something like Mormonism that was really horrible to me. I don't blame you. And I would yeah, have... I mean, Mormonism really left a bad taste in my mouth, I must say, and I have a lot of fear when it comes to just believing without scientific proof when it comes to certain things. But well, science... I've never understood, you know, I mean, I don't know. You know, science will disappoint you, I think, more readily than the Christian story. But Alyssa, you know, I think we may have talked, or you're somebody with a similar story as yours, but you, you need to go yourself. You need to go test it out. You go to the mountain. You say, God, I don't even know if you're there, but I'm willing to let you reach into me, show me, talk to me, please. I don't want religion. I want you. If you do it with an open heart, you're going to find him. But if you have oh, walls I have up, an open heart. I have all these like doubts and things. I how don't can, know how I can have an open heart and doubts too? You know, how so can you doubt, Alyssa? How can you doubt going to God directly and saying, "Show me"? You're not. I mean, I know how you could doubt coming to me or somebody else, your husband, your pastor, your bishop. But how can you doubt going to God directly and saying, "Open my eyes, show me the truth"? You're going directly to the source. You have that right. Okay. <laughs> Do it. Love ya. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Uh, we're going to, uh, 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 who's been on the line longest? Bob in Washington. Bob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey I, I had a couple uh, questions I was wondering if you could clarify uh, on the Trinity and on your position on it. Mm -hmm. um, as far as I understand, because I've watched the Inquisition and the some of the other uh, broadcasts that preceded it and followed after. Um, but as far as I can tell, you don't believe that there are three persons in one God or three entities or wills or whatever you want to call that. Is that correct? No, uh, that, that's not correct. I do believe there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now, and the Son will be the Son forever and ever till the end of the age. So I do believe that now. My problem is, at, from the beginning, I do not see Father, Son, Holy Spirit relationship as persons. That's the only problem. At the beginning? Yeah. And so, uh, okay, well, this is interesting. So now you think there's three persons, but in the beginning, there weren't three persons. Right, I think that there was God, Theos, and I believe that he had so, his word, and I think he had his pneuma, and I think that there was relationship between them. Now listen, it's gonna be very tough for a human being to describe the relationship of a spirit invisible fire God and his word. But there was some kind of relationship. I just have issue with the term persons. I don't see Jesus in there in a white robe before the creation standing there with father and having a father-son relationship. I don't see that in scripture. I don't think the Jews saw it, and that was part of their problem with his claims when he became incarnate. Okay, so uh, I was listening tonight how you quoted from John 8, where he said that before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. Now, was that Jesus? 
That was God, and God dwelled in Jesus completely, totally. Jesus Christ. Jesus, 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 you, you're, you're saying that you can't equate Jesus with I am. Jesus, Jesus himself was not I am. Jesus himself was body and flesh. He was given the name when he was born. Inside of him, I am. But didn't, but didn't Jesus say that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin? Of course, and he is I am. But he was talking about his incarnation of being God in the flesh. He was not talking about, remember, in the very same chapter, he said, I say nothing of myself. I only do what the Father told me because they were looking at him as a man. He was not saying trust the man. He was saying trust the fact that God sent me to do his will and I'm in flesh. We are not looking to the flesh of Christ to, to, to well, I can't say to save us because it was, but his flesh was all man. His flesh was entirely man. It was subject to temptation. His flesh was subject to death. His flesh bled. He was tried. His flesh was man. But what was in him was God. And he says, if you don't believe that I am, talking about what was in him, you will die in your sin. I don't see any inconsistency with how I see it. Okay. Um, the, another question along that line, though, is in Revelation, it talks about the lamb being slain before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Who is that? I, I think it was the lamb. You don't think that was Christ or Jesus? Well, I think that one, we're talking about the book of Revelation. We are talking about a book that's very difficult to interpret. Two, it doesn't say okay. the sun. It uses imagery called the lamb. And we're talking about innocence there. Innocence slain from the foundation of the world. So to me, I think it's a stretch to say that was talking about Jesus Christ who as a, as a person in the, in the before creation was slain. I don't see that as saying that at all. Okay. But don't, um, don't let this become, I'm telling you, this is all purposeful in the Mormon Christian dialogue. Uh, if you are a Trinitarian and you believe Jesus in, in a body of spirit person was with the Father in a spirit person as one God in the pre-creation, I love you as a brother. But I don't like the word Trinity, I don't like the creeds, and I don't like the word persons assigned to Theos prior to the creation when I don't think the Bible does. Okay. I mean, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. I don't agree, but I, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Thank you. Um, one, uh, one other question I had, and I've heard you uh, touch on this briefly, but I was just wondering if you could clarify a point, and that is on your position on eternal punishment. Yeah. <laughs> where you feel that there's a, it's limited, that it's not eternal. Correct. Uh, uh, we are going to... We have two minutes left, Bob. And uh, well, uh, well, my question is this, is that at the end of the time, are people released from the bondage of hell or the lake of fire? I believe that Did, they... they return to the Father? I believe that um, in the end, God reconciles all men to himself. What state okay. they arrive to him at, I do not know. They are not okay. saved... They are not saved, remember that, but I do believe God reconciles all the world to himself. Okay, the, 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 the question then that I have is that what that sounds like is a plan B way. Well, remember, oh. G let me just put it to you this way, Bob. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The yeah. soul in the Greek is the mind, will, and emotion, okay? Yeah. Now, believers, there's no plan B there. There's one plan, and that is to be saved through faith while in this life, and you go to, uh, uh, to God, absent from the body, present with the Lord, and you retain your mind, will, and emotion. You retain your soul. You retain your spirit. You get a resurrected body. You're part of the first resurrection. You're called his sons. You're, you're heirs with co-heirs with Christ. Those who go to hell or lake of fire... They lose their soul, mind, will, emotion. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound like we'll recognize them when they come out, except for maybe their facial hair. And, and, and it sounds to me like they, there is a great loss for whatever happens there. I am not equating this to universal salvation or a plan B, or they get to come and join the party too. All I'm saying is 
Now is the time to receive Christ, to be part of his church, his body. But I do believe God, from the beginning, will reconcile all people to himself, through Christ only. And we're going to cover this well, in then, more depth. If you, say, if you say that through Christ only, then, then those at the end of this term of punishment cannot be reconciled. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? Yeah, so what is that? That's not I mean, enough? That, that includes the devil too, doesn't it? Uh, the Bible was written for man. I don't think it was written for an, uh, heavenly angels and Satan and those types who had firsthand vision. The Bible is what we read for ourselves. And, and I think it's clear that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the, and the Bible also tells us no man can confess Christ is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So somehow those, those hell-bound, lake of fire-bound people are going to be able to confess his name by the Holy Spirit or that scripture is wrong. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, listen, don't give up on it. Go to tentmakers.org or .com and read up and see what's being said there. You don't have to buy it, but I'm going to tell you something. I preach tell exactly how it's preached. I believed it. I have not changed because I'm such a humanist. I believed in hell exactly how it was taught until my eyes were opened. And when my eyes opened, it changed the dynamic of the type of Christian I am, and I praise God for it. Check it out. Listen, Bob, I gotta let you go. Thank you for watching and calling. We have Chris in Houston, Texas. We have Jim in Lehigh, and we are out of time. What? I gotta take three. We're gonna take three. We're out of time, but go ahead, Chris. Hey, Sean, it's uh, glad, to, uh, glad to talk to you. Um, I have a, two questions for you. The first one deals with, uh, well, let me give you some history about myself. I'm uh, currently a member of the LDS Church, but uh, I don't really believe anymore, and I've been visiting a Protestant church down the road from me. Um, but the uh, missionaries and so forth still come to my place, and I enjoy talking with them because, well, I can... Uh, after watching your show, I have some good questions for him, and I learn more about Mormonism that way than I ever learned as an active member. But uh, my first question is, uh, they, read, they wrote, read me a passage from Nephi. Um, this was the other night. And the passage, passage said, uh, anything that's good brings people to Christ. Anything that's bad uh, drives people away from Christ. So I asked them, doesn't that mean the local Protestant church is uh, just as good as the LDS church? They wouldn't give me a straight answer. Mm. Um, so my question to you, what is the actual stance of the church? The body of Christ or the Mormon church? Uh, the Mormon church. I mean, like, what is their actual um, view of uh, Protestant churches? Because this this passage from Nephi, and I can't tell you which one it was. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's 2 Nephi chapter, uh, uh, I think it's 29. That's what comes to memory. But let me tell you, I'm going to wrap this up, Chris. Are you ready? We're out of time, and that's why. Um, it depends on a number of factors, as everything does with Mormonism. If you're talking about in the early days of the church, Protestantism was a tool of the devil. Protestant church was in the hands of the devil, and the temple ceremony reflected that that anything that was not the true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Church of the Devil. And that has propagated itself through time. But in this day and age, it's become very, very massaged and delivered very gingerly. Nevertheless, in the end, Mormonism will say Protestant churches have good. They have truth. But they don't have the full truth. And without the full truth, People are going to their form of hell. So that's the bottom line answer to it. If you're not LDS and you have not received their endowments and you have not received their ordinances and you haven't believed, you will, being subject to Protestant teachings, go to a form of hell or damnation. That's the doctrine. All right, that wraps it up then, Tom. I know, or Sean, I know you're out of time, so. Keep watching, my brother. Thanks. Thank you.
Okay, God bless. We'll talk to you later. We're out of time. I'm sorry for going over. Our editors have a lot to do on this one, but we love you. Keep watching. We're going to continue to pursue the truth and bring together some commonality and then get rid of the garbage. See you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till 